Welcome to the Ward Zero podcast, covering the civic issues you most want to talk about. You are now entering Ward Zero. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of the Ward Zero podcast. My name is Esmahan Razavi, and as ever, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Darren Kraus and Jeremy Zhao. We want to begin with a land acknowledgement. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that we live, work, and play on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, the Kainai, and the Pikani, the Sutina, the Stony Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and all the people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. So uh, it's been a while since we've recorded a podcast. You might be wondering what we have coming up for you in season two. So let's give you a little bit of a preview in terms of what you can expect for this upcoming season. We're going to talk about the important topics happening at City Hall, provide a little bit more insight than you might get otherwise, um, some information and some context. So you'll be City Hall nerds after listening to us. We'll have some interviews to add different perspectives on the important issues facing Calgary. It'll be more fun and it'll just be a great time. Uh, so stay tuned and enjoy this, uh, this first episode of our new season. And a special thanks to our podcast sponsor, Calgary-based startup Eat for Later. Check them out at eatforlater.com. That's eat for like the number four later.com. So we're going to begin with our hot takes, and we are full of them today. Darren, you have one that I know you've been sitting on for a little while. I have, and I really think that it sort of played itself out even more since we initially started talking. You know, I I do want to tell listeners out there that that we did uh, have one early recording. It was tied a little bit around the event center. Um, That moved really, really quickly. So we didn't really think that it was, you know, appropriate given, you know, how quickly things were moving, we would have felt really dated. But this is, this actually came out a little bit more since that time. There's been a lot of talk, uh, the mayor has talked a lot about it as well, where this is a council that is full of people who really want to do great things for Calgary and move the city ahead. And while they may not agree on everything, they agree that, you know, they want to move the city towards a better place. One of the reasons or one of the things that came out during the the last election or during the campaign was that people wanted a council that worked well together. And I'm not saying that this council isn't working well together, but you can certainly see that the lines are being drawn and you can certainly see how a lot of that old, tired, dog whistle rhetoric is being used in council chambers already. So while I think that there's potential for this council to be really good, I also think that there's a real possibility that it falls in the same trap as the last one. And all we get is division on council and all of this drama for certain issues that we saw from the last council. And I think that would be very disappointing for a lot of people. Well, let's hope you're wrong, Darren. <laughs> let's hope you're wrong. 
I have a hot take as well. And it's unfortunately something that we're seeing quite a lot of lately. So just recently, uh, Mayor Gondek's house was surrounded by uh, anti-vaccine protesters. You know, there was video, video floating around about that. Prior to that, I think it was in the summer that the same thing happened to Minister Copping. And now uh, the same thing happened to George Chahal. And not only is this, you know, terrible because it is a way to to intimidate uh, politicians and their families by, you know, making them feel unsafe in their own homes. But I really think that this has a really chilling effect on our democracy because if you think about how hard it is to encourage people to run for office, to, you know, make the sacrifices that they make, particularly particularly people who are women, um, people of color, people who tend to be more targeted, um, and all the work that's gone around that in terms of recruitment. And now we see that, you know, there is a real sense of danger to run for office, then it just seems like this is going to discourage people from running. And um, we will be a lot poorer for it as a city, as a province, as a country. Jeremy, you have one too. So the property assessments came out recently for the city of Calgary and, you know, for all the talk that we had during the election about taxes and everything, I found it very surprising. There was very little discussion on it, especially, you know, there was this beautiful chart that was on Livewire where it kind of showed the the disparity kind of between inner city dropping um you know, up to 15% in property assessments versus the suburbs, you know, the outer rim where property values are going up. And I just felt this is something that we don't talk about enough, where there are huge consequences, I think, in terms of long term planning of kind of where the city is going to go, because we have this huge grand plan to have 50%, you know, development within the inner city, by a certain certain date, either I think it's 2050. And so there's a lot of questions about, at least in my opinion, where that money is going to go when it comes to development for you know infrastructure, for projects like that downtown revitalization. For me, I think it's really important that we actually look at what the trends are and see if this is just a temporary blip because of COVID or is it going to be a long-term thing where the city has to scramble and kind of rethink its long-term process. Okay, so we're going to go into our segment section of the podcast. And the first thing we're going to talk about is the um, home security costs for Calgary counselors. And I kind of referred to this a little bit in my hot take, but um, as we know, certain politicians in the city have been beset by, you know, protests outside of their homes. They've uh, talked about feeling unsafe, you know, their families feel unsafe by the sort of uh, vitriol and anger, you know, from the protesters who are, who are outside their homes. And so Calgary City Councilor uh, talked about whether or not the city should pay for the installation of home security systems for elected officials following these, uh, you know, home protests. And after a closed session where they heard from corporate security, there was a motion put forward 
I believe it was by Councillor Walcott for this uh, for the city to cover costs associated with the systems. It would allow for up to eight thousand dollars for equipment, and I think something like a hundred dollars uh, per month for monitoring. So the vote passed, but it was really tight. It was an eight to seven vote. You know, Darren, Jeremy, this is sort of like a split decision here. What do you think? Should the city be paying these costs? Is there a real concern with these protests? Darren, I know you have something to say about the latter question. I guess, first of all, uh, let me tease Aaron Toombs' really in-depth look at some of the extremists that are involved. Now, I want to be very careful uh, to say that I'm actually in favor of protesting. I, I think, you know, and, and I actually don't, don't care, care what the cause is or, or what you're doing, because that's one of the beauties of, of democracy. But it's the players that are involved in some of these protests that are being tracked and they're, they're well known within some of the extremist circles. And those are the people who we should be worried about. And, you know, it's, it's really easy to say that some of these bad apples give the rest of these protests a bad name, but the reality is they're there and they're probably there to draw other people in. And that could in the end sort of perpetuate some form of violence happening out of these protests. But take a look at Aaron Toombs' piece because uh, it's really interesting. With that said, I think there's a number of things that need to be clarified about this whole thing. First of all, back in May 2021, they made the decision to remove security expenses for councillors' offices. Uh, as they were going through the coordinating uh, council committee office, blah, 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 CCCO, uh, they were going through those budgets and then Councillor Diane collier was going through it after the whole Joe Maglioka debacle. And that was actually taken out at the time. It was supposed to be put forward to a future council meeting. As we all know, some of the incidents have started escalating. We have these protests out in front of politicians' homes. They decided to bring it in, address the issue immediately. So it was there before. They were just reinstating the cash, but they also put a, a value on it. And that was a mistake that even Mayor Gondek admitted they made was that they didn't communicate, A, that it was being reinstated, and B, that the $8,000 was opt-in only and that not all of it was likely going to be used. But you've got this whole discussion about how city council is spending $120,000 on home security. My guess is out of 15 people, I'm going to go out on a limb and say four, maybe five, take the city up on the offer. And there's no way, no way that you would spend $8,000 on a security system. So we're really looking at, I'm going to guess, less than $20,000 to handle all of this security. I think one of the big things is this short-sightedness where it only takes one serious injury or serious incident for the city to go, uh-oh, we didn't do something, we didn't do our due diligence when it came to security we were trying to save taxpayer money, but now like a certain individual gets injured or gets uh, seriously uh, injured for the long term and they 
go and start suing the city or who, whomever they feel slighted them in terms of security or providing them the protection that they probably needed in this environment. And I just see that as a very short-sighted argument to say, hey, we need to save $100,000 when they could be on the hook for millions because of the due diligence that wasn't conducted safety in some ways goes beyond the sort of monetary calculation that we are so used to talking about in politics. I mean, we have seen instances in, you know, quote unquote, Western democracies, which are often held up as like the pinnacle of like safe governments around the world. Um, For example, in England, there was an MP who was uh, murdered. I know that, um, you know, we've seen instances of like real violence in the U.S. There was that governor who was, um, there was a kidnapping uh, attempt that was overthrown. um, I think it was last summer or something like that. Time is meaningless in COVID. And so, I mean, like Jeremy said, it, it really only takes one instance. And there is so much out there about how in particular violent or angry this in like the anti-vax movement is in particular you know there's like an intersection with the white supremacists and other groups that are I, I think most of us find kind of scary so I think it's a really important thing to happen I think that politicians should feel safe in their homes and their families should feel safe in their homes and it shouldn't be the case that someone's child is scared to go outside and walk their dog because their mom or dad is a politician that's not right But I also think that this problem goes beyond paying for people's uh, security systems. Like, what are we doing to actually address the sort of hatred and anger that we are seeing so much of in politics nowadays? And that's being stoked, frankly, by a, a lot of politicians as well. That's a real big problem. And I think until we actually like tackle that in a meaningful way, these uh, acts are only going to become more and more common. And I really, really worry that someone's actually going to get hurt. And why would, why would, you know, <laughs> I'm going to get called out here. Councillor McLean had indicated, hey, this is what you signed up for. So why should the taxpayers be on the hook for this? Well, you know, I think at least as a, a an individual who's, uh, who's visible minority, sometimes you have to almost experience, I guess, your first racist you know, incident or the first death threat, kind of like what uh, Councillor DeMong had said to kind of really change your worldview on what the world is like today. I think when Councillor McLean made that comment, I can only speak for myself to say, hey, you know, there are other individuals who've experienced a lot worse out there. I don't think it's as easy just to say that and to say, move on with your life. Yeah, I thought that that was like really insensitive and ridiculous. Uh, Nobody signs up to be threatened or to be unsafe. And if a function of your job uh, is such that it puts you at harm's risk, then it seems like there is supposed to be some kind of mitigation in terms of for that risk. So I I didn't really understand like what he was saying. And I don't think that anybody's child signs up for angry protesters outside their home that make them feel unsafe and that's just like really, really terrible. I, I actually think this is going to tie in nicely to uh, our, our next topic. We're, we'll, we'll wait till we get there. Um, but it, it, it really is that difference between politics and governance. Uh, you'll, you'll know, listeners out there, you'll know what I'm talking about when we get to that topic. 
some, I mean, you brought up Councillor McLean's comments, and there were there were other comments as well that were that that fell along the lines of of being a little bit more politically motivated. It's it's more like I don't like your politics, so therefore I don't think you deserve a, a security system. It, it wasn't rooted in well thought out, pragmatic understanding of the situation and how troubling it must be when you have these protests out in front of your house to the safety aspect. I mean, Aaron, Aaron Toombs put out this, this piece. We had to have a conversation about, okay, what could some of the potential blowback be for us? And through that, we decided that there was enough risk, even though we're journalists and we're not necessarily in the same category as, as politicians, but it was enough so that I got my two younger kids together. I got my wife. I said, okay, look, uh, you know what dad does? Uh, we're putting out a story involving potentially these kind of folks. And i just wanted to let you know that while unlikely, there may be a situation where, where somebody says something to me or, or does something to our home. And I don't think it scared my kids because I mean, this is the Fortnite generation after all, they just think they can bring out whatever little bouncy exploding toy that does its thing. But they were like, okay, thanks for letting us know. And then my nine-year-old goes, well, like, would they come to our house? And I said, well, hopefully not uh, because dad's just doing his job. That small thing is just a microcosm of what could be happening. George Chahal's post today that he has a 17, 13, and nine-year-old daughter. Could you imagine? I just had to explain it to my nine-year-old son. His nine-year-old daughter had to experience it out in front of her home. So that's like, it's unfortunate that we're living in that world right now, but here we are. Thanks for sharing that experience with us, Darren. And, you know, I'm sorry that you have to have that conversation with your children. It's not right. Um, but I did want to pick up on something else you said, which is that, you know, there was this thread of politics in the discussion where it's like, yeah, if I don't think that you should be protected, if I disagree with your politics and a, like, that's like, what's wrong with politics nowadays, because everybody should feel safe if they are in elected office. I don't believe that people who are in elected office should be immune from pro protests. Absolutely. We should be calling, writing letters, angry tweeting, <laughs> as I sometimes do, going on, mar going to marches, you know, protesting outside of city hall or the legislature in Alberta or uh, in Ottawa parliament, um, you know, parliament, that's absolutely normal and should happen in a democracy. But I feel like it's such a short-sighted approach to think about this as like, well, I'm, you know, I don't like X person. And so I don't think they should be protected because A, it's not just about the council that's, it, it's not just about the council that is in place right now. It's also about everybody else who wants to be involved in politics and how many people are going to self-select out of being political, out of being journalists, out of being in any kind of politics or politics adjacent role because of what they're seeing happen right now. And isn't that like really damaging for our democracy and for our whole political system? So it doesn't like, it, it doesn't make sense to me that politicians who are part of that system wouldn't recognize that and wouldn't be first in line to advocate for us to have a safe and stable political ecosystem. Aaron, in, in that article, Darren, that you referenced, talk about echo chambers, right? And how easy it is for 
people anywhere online now to get together in a group and kind of just, you know, perpetuate whatever thoughts they had without listening to um, other opinions and believe that that is the only way to go. And that kind of fuels itself into more extremism as they get deeper and deeper. And some of those politicians, I'm not saying city council, I'm saying there are politicians out there who unfortunately get, you know, way into those types of groups and, you know, everybody there is supporting each other and they're, they just selectively refuse to listen to anything else because it's just so easy now online to do it. Okay, so I'm going to move on to our next segment, which is a bit of like a philosophical discussion, which I'm very excited about. It's I love philosophy. (laughs) Me too. That's what I studied. So I love it. I'm glad we get to delve into this. It's this distinction between politics versus governance. Jeremy, this was kind of your brainchild to talk about today. So I'm going to let you take us away. Yeah. And so I was listening to not to plug another podcast, the the Capital Daily podcast, which is which goes through kind of politics on Vancouver Island, the host there, Jackie Lamport, interviewed a longtime counselor who's no, who's no longer on the Victoria City Council, Chris Coleman, and he was talking about what it was like to actually govern versus what it was like to be campaigning while he was running for council. He had highlighted that things are very different when you're campaigning and maybe you're a little bit naive and you're a little bit optimistic about what you talk about as campaign promises versus when you actually get into office and now you actually have to face all these different third-party actors and you actually have to implement policy along with other colleagues of yours. And it's not that easy, right? And so I was reflecting on, you know, even the first few months of this new city council in Calgary where Mayor Gondek has had to face basically a collapsed arena deal because a third party decided, hey, I don't want to play a certain game. Also kind of with her chief of staff being at the center of attention, you know, the, uh, Stephen Carter was the campaign manager. Now he's transitioned into the chief of staff and we can see that uh, certain counselors and, and the media are calling out, you know, why does he get certain privileges? you know, what that transition looks like. Is he suitable to be the chief of staff? It was just these conversations that got me thinking about, hey, this topic about politics versus governance is really important. And we have to be able to distinguish between the two. It's a great, great topic, politics versus governance. We could probably have an entire podcast on this topic. And the problem I as I see it, I mean, I cover city hall quite, I I guess, exclusively almost, you can very much see councillors or, I mean, even even MLAs and, and some MPs, they really mix up politics and governance. And they try to govern with politics, or they try to politic their way out with governance. And it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, a, a good example of that would be the home security thing. 
we're trying to have good governance and we're some counselors are 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 thinking of something that's so myopic that $120,000 and they are so wrapped up in the politics of you defunded the police and now you're asking for for home security that's not even remotely what the equation is or you are asking for more compensation. Again, that's not even remotely what this is, but they use those dog whistle political tactics and try to govern that way. There's really a time for politics. There's a time for those kinds of comments. There's a time to put those things out there, but then there's a time to govern. Probably one of the best that I've seen in Calgary at that, in my opinion, is Peter DeMong. Peter DeMong knows exactly when he needs to be political about a topic, but he also recognizes the importance of good governance. And it is very, very apparent in the decisions that he makes on council, where sometimes you go, okay, yeah, I see where Peter's coming from. Uh, That falls in line with, with how many would view him politically. But then there are other situations where you take a look and you go, yeah, Peter has asked all the right questions. He recognizes that is that this is in the best interest of council, of Calgarians, of the broader picture. This is good governance. I don't think enough politicians really understand the difference. And unfortunately, they tend to err on the side of politics because they know that that is ultimately what wins them votes at the end of the day. And and frankly, I think that the best example of where this failed miserably is in Jeremy Farkas's mayoral run. It was politics, 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 politics. And rarely was there enough effort put into good governance overall and well-researched governance. And that ultimately was his downfall. I'm going to be a little bit of a devil's advocate, but first, I'm not exactly totally a devil's advocate here because I do think that um, some of the iterations of politics that we see today are really at odds with good governance. And I think, you know, one example, something that just comes to mind uh, because I listen to counsel and I read your uh, tweets all the time, Darren. So shout out to your, your live tweeting. I was following the arena discussion and I know that, you know, uh, Dan McLean made this comment that was like super offside about how t- it was something like, did the arena deal fall apart because administration just like went away on holiday and right. it was not very, not very nice uh, to put it mildly. And, you know, David Duckworth kind of took exception to the comment in a very polite way uh, and talked about how hard administration works. And to me, that's like a real instance of someone, you know, in this instance, Councillor Mc- McLean trying to score a political point at the expense of like the morale of administration and in some ways the truth, because we know that administration has been, you know, hard at work. And if they went on holiday, I'm sure that every counselor uh, did some kind of holiday as well. So yeah, I do think that like counselors and, and politicians can, you know, try to score that political point at the expense of like bridge building or trying to get something done. But I think that that's because so many of our politicians are convinced that what I would call like bad politics is the only way to do politics nowadays. And what I mean by that is like, 
they think that to win, uh, to, to get reelected, to be a popular politician, what they have to do is like create division and find someone to like rail against and be extreme. Whereas like if they did what I would think is like good politics, which to me, politics is like, you know, that act of like engaging with your constituents, engaging with your community, what they could be doing is going out there, building a case for public support that's based in facts, truly being uh, responsive to their community and being that conduit between community and council so that they're not just governing in this like bubble that is fully removed from people, which I think is a criticism that people have of politics and politicians in general, where it's like, yeah, they're in this bubble. They are not truly listening to us. That's where the elitism criticism comes from. You know, if they chose to do a better job of being that conduit and approaching politics in a more good faith way, I think we could see politics and governance go hand in hand, but that's not what's popular in politics nowadays. Esmahan, I just want to give you points for for bringing up the event center and saying that one counselor's comments were offside. Good on you. Thank you. You know, I didn't even try to do that. It just came out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it only it all it takes is one comment to basically ruin a lot of things, right? It only takes one idea or one tweet to really discredit. It could be months worth of work, years even worth of work. And now, you know, you, you make a, you make a comment or you just say, you know, a general out generality. And then those who want the, the, the quick hits and the easy politics, they get their win. And it, for me, what I'm most afraid of is the impacts it has to like long-term planning, how you score these, you know, easy wins, but at the, at, but sacrifice the long-term planning. Like I'm always all about long-term planning. If you're just here to govern for the uh, next election cycle, then I think your priorities need to be reevaluated because a city like Calgary, who's who's been struggling so much, can't live on just four-year cycles of of how we do things. It's it's based on a, a long-term plan that has vision, has a strategy of some semblance rather than, oh, it's too expensive. So we're not going to do anything. And I just don't think that's the way to build a good city. I totally agree. And I mean, I think that's why so often some of the best politicians are those who don't give a fuck. <laughs> Sorry, who don't. Nice. Yes. <laughs> yes. We're keeping that. Is this Can I swear on this? Who don't, who don't give a beep. Okay, who don't care whether or not they're going to be reelected because what they're ultimately doing is really working for the best outcomes for their constituents, whether or not those outcomes are necessarily the most popular or not. But I also think that like, in addition to the point that you made, Jeremy, it's not just bad for city planning and city building. It's also, and this is like a common thread for me today, it's also bad for our democracy because it's so often that this sort of politics is predicated on misinformation, on villainizing other groups, on um, really bringing out the worst elements in us as people. And like, I'll, I'll just use like an example that is you know happening right now, uh, not in a city context, but I'm sure we're all seeing this like discussion about empty store shelves at grocery stores, whether or not that's a real thing. There's a certain, there's certain politicians who are, who are saying that we need to support Uh, truck drivers who are unvaccinated because we are facing 
supply chain issues, which I think uh, is demonstrably false. And yet it is essentially like widening a schism that is already quite large between, you know, vaccinated and unvaccinated people. And what's, you know, it's just misinformation that's being used and who ultimately is worse off for this. It's our democracy. You know, Esmahan, just on the whole misinformation thing, I did go to the grocery store. First time I really actually did a meaningful grocery shop in probably, I don't know, I'm going to say five years. Uh, I will say that there were some empty shelves, but it wasn't like, holy Moses, look at all these empty shelves. Most of the things were full. I, I didn't struggle to get anything I was looking for. So, and, and from what I understand, maybe those photos were actually from before. I, I, I heard that they were from 2020, which if so, is really disappointing because that is the epitome of misinformation. And you're right. It, it just, it, it hurts the public. It hurts the institution that we, that we operate under. It does. And just to your comment about uh, the photos being from 2020, I, I did see that the first photo that was tweeted by an MP in Ontario was actually from a UK grocery store. So well done, Al- MP is, from Ontario. Well done. Is Alberta doing all right? You, you doing okay? <laughs> We're doing good. We're doing okay. Good. Okay. Just wanted, I just wanted to check in. discussion on the green line. If you thought that, you know, talking about the green line was so 2021 or 2020, it's now a 2022 topic. Darren, I'm going to turn it over to you because it's, you know, we're going to see a report coming to executive committee and you have some of the details here. Okay. So before you oversell me, the details, (laughs) the details are that the top line information on the financials from the Q1 Green Line board report say that cost escalation is the real deal. They are concerned about uh, the impact it will have on the Green Line. And it says very specifically that they are reviewing mitigation measures for the cost escalation. What does that mean? And I talked with Mayor Gondek uh, a little bit about it. And she may have had details. Uh, she maybe didn't want them out public before the, the Green Line Board was able to present their report. But she was still hopeful that there would be enough money to complete the whole phase one, which I believe is from Eau Claire all the way down to Shepherd. Uh, but also that there's this whole idea now that went along with the, the phase one, phase two, that phase two would only be built if there was enough money left over from phase one. And if we're dealing with cost escalations now, imagine what the end budget's going to be and will there actually be enough money to, to get it across the Bow River? We saw the impact of cost escalations on a project that was one-tenth of the size. We have the event center and costs rose by about $80 million. So roughly, what's that mathematically, 13, 15% in just a little over a year. So if 
costs rose by 15% on the green line, we're looking at another $750 million. Where do we get that kind of cash or to the mitigation aspect? Where are we going to have to change the current green line configuration in order to meet that initial budget? One of the questions that was posed to me, which I didn't have the answer for during uh, the Twitter spaces Fridays at five, if we aren't able to build out this project without perhaps the city putting in more money, does it jeopardize the funding from the other orders of government? It's a great question. and, And I didn't have the answer to it. The reality is Calgarians, councillors, past councillors may have to readjust their expectations for the Green Line project, depending on how much the costs have actually escalated. I'm not sure if, if that makes for more pedestrian, I guess I use pedestrian in, in air quotes there, pedestrian, maybe, maybe brutalist the way the other stations were just the the concrete structures rather than that vision of of placemaking for many of these stations it's going to be interesting to see particularly because they want the green line shovels in the ground like they expect to spend a lot of money this year on infrastructure starting to lay that first bit of phase one of the green line it'll be interesting to see where it goes like how are we not at a point where like costs will go up. I mean, inflation was insane 2021 and it's going to just get higher. There's, there's no way around it. Plus the fact that the, the bank of Canada is raising their interest rates. So like in what scenario where is there that they predict where it doesn't happen? I mean, this is like well, an inevitability. Well, and, and not only that, but, and, and it's in our quick hits later, but if we have to borrow some money, Typically, we borrow through the province, and they raised the interest rate on those loans as well. So we're looking at potentially that adding cost to the Green Line project as well. In, in, in some of my notes here, you know, it's, it's interesting if we go back to the, the whole policy, uh, sorry, politics versus governance thing. You know, I know there were some folks that were not a big fan of the arena deal, but like in practical terms, this arena uh, is directly tied to that that green line expansion, particularly because I was looking at a map. There's particular that one station, right, Fourth Street Southeast, that's right next to the arena. And if there's no arena, we have this basically uh, the station that goes to a parking lot. So you know, there's so many things tied to it. You know, the impact to the Eau Claire redevelopment. I, I just go all of these things are tied in terms of long-term aspects. And let's say we, we, you know, th- there were some people that were good for us, you know, standing up uh, against the arena deal, but without the arena as well, that this further adds uh, volatility to the green line project. What I hope doesn't get lost in the discussion of cost overrun, which is obviously important is that, This is a project that is, especially the second phase, which is up to 16th Avenue. This is a project that's going to bring public transit to parts of the city that have really been lacking in any kind of meaningful, on-time, rapid transit. And if this project falls apart because funding funding from other orders of government was contingent on like 
costs not being overrun or anything like that, that's really going to mean a huge deficit of infrastructure for, uh, in particular, the northern part of, part of our city. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. I will tease only because I hope to get this out uh, right away after this. Uh, I'm actually speaking with the Greenline CEO, Darshpreet Batty, on Friday. I should have a piece out for the weekend. I'm going to ask him straight up about some of these questions because I think we, I mean, it was so funny how, how you led that in, Asmahan, about being, about the Green Line being so 2021, because after all of that decision making and all of the grind over the past two years, well, three years, four years of the Green Line, we're now faced with this prospect that outside external factors could impact this project rather than the political ones that, that we were so accustomed to before. Sorry, that was my pen dropping. Your mic dropping or your pen dropping? Okay, so we're going to move to the quick hit segment of our podcast. Uh, Darren, you're going to educate us a little bit now. Yeah, so as I alluded to a little bit earlier, this is something that no one's talking about. And it happened in December, very, very quietly. The province had in the past provided below market rate loans for municipalities. Most municipalities have to, they don't go to the financial institutions and whatnot and and say, hey, BMO, hey, Royal Bank, can you lend me some cash? They go to the province. Uh, The province has, you know, billions and billions in assets and and they have much larger borrowing power than, than any of the municipalities have. So they go. And they have been uh, offering these below market loans for, for years. Way back when I was in politics, we were getting below market loans. Uh, so this actually could have a significant impact. So there's one very recent thing, again, coming up at executive committee where NMAX through the city, through the province is going to be borrowing $229 million for a variety of things. As I'm thinking to myself, well, let's just say it's, it's half a point higher. If it's half a point higher, I mean, we're talking about an extra, I don't know, million dollars, million dollars in interest per year. That isn't coming out of the good graces of NMAX's profit line. That is, that is going directly back onto a rate rider of some sort or, or an increase in cost that directly goes back onto maybe not Calgary taxpayers, but Calgary homeowners. If this gets into municipal infrastructure, and, and the city did actually send me a, a response back uh, saying that, that, well, they understand that the province is focused on fiscal stewardship, they're maybe not recognizing the impact that this is going to have on the sustainability of cities. So that's something to keep an eye out. I I am going to put a piece out on it uh, with a little bit more detail, but that kind of gives you the Coles notes. That was actually more than Coles notes. These are supposed to be quick hits. I will note that a notice of motion is also coming for a technical review at uh, the executive committee this week. 
it for a land transfer for the Indigenous gathering place along the Bowen Elbow Rivers. And that's because there uh, is a, a significant cultural and spiritual uh, meaning for Indigenous peoples uh, for the confluence of the Bowen Elbow Rivers. And uh, so they're trying to find some land in the area for that spot. It'd be re really interesting to see what land they get and how that gathering place turns out. always we want to thank you so much for joining us remember that if you want to talk about municipal politics there's a lot of ways you can do so you can join us on well when I say us I mean Darren and sometimes appearances by us on uh, Twitter spaces at 5 p.m on Friday uh, just go to his Twitter handle at livewire underscore dk or you can follow us on Twitter in addition to uh, Darren Jeremy is at JZ from Calgary, and I'm at Asmahan YYC. And we do want to thank our podcast sponsor, Calgary-based startup Eat for Later. Check them out at eatforlater.com. Thanks for listening to the first episode of season two, and we will chat to you soon. Bye. Bye.